Hello and welcome back to Franklin Covey's On Leadership Series. My name is Scott Miller and I serve as your weekly host and interviewer. For those of you that have been subscribing for the first 100 plus episodes now, you know that I've mentioned several times, this is now the world's largest subscribed to and distributed leadership podcast weekly. We're honored that each of you have chosen to tune back in today. We invite you to join us with your family, your friends, your boss, your leaders, your colleagues. We'd love to have each of you join us weekly on Tuesdays as we distribute a different interview with a thought leader, business professional, CEO, someone with a particular idea around the realm of leadership. Now, some of these interviews have gotten quite broad, right? They, they have, uh, we have topics with best-selling authors all the way from extreme sports stars to psychologists or psychiatrists or MDs. And today's a special interview because we picked someone exactly in the sweet spot of what I would call sort of organizational leadership. This is a what she might call herself a reformed academician. Today we have Dr. Wanda Wallace joining us, who is a fairly renowned speaker, coach, podcaster, radio host, best-selling author, former associate dean in the School of Business at Duke University. I fell in love with her book, You Can't Know It All, Leading in the Age of Deep Expertise. For those of you who are in a leadership role in an organization or thinking of joining the ranks of those, you're going to want to tune in, especially close today. Dr. Wallace, thank you for joining us and welcome to On Leadership. Thanks, Scott. Pleasure to be here. So, uh, Wanda, you spend your time between two cities, London and New York. We're taping this in the midst of the the quarantine and lockdown, you're safely, I think, in your apartment in New York City. How's it going up there? No, well, in my part of the world, it's not too bad. But I have to tell you, there are a lot of people around me who are struggling. So true. I'm grateful for having a lovely office and a good, safe place to be. And your library rivals mine. Mine's a little more organized, but I'm impressed with your leadership library behind you. I think I've thrown out about 75 times as many books over the years. Sadly, I just can't keep them all. And I have gone to E for environmental purposes, I have to say, trying at least. Have you? I, those I, are my, some of my favorites are back yeah, there. Yeah, I can't do the e-book. Any tips for those of us like me that are old school and still like the print book? What, what tips do you have for no. moving from print to E? I'll tell you, when you start traveling as much as I yeah. travel and you end up carrying three and four books in your suitcase, it'll convert you to E pretty quickly. And if you get a really good reader with a really good screen on it, um, whatever your preferred device, I happen to like iPads, but then it's just practice. You just get used to how it works. Like anything else, it's a habit. Whenever I'm um, frisked at the TSA, not recently, fortunately, but when my bag gets pulled apart, they look at me like, why do you have seven hardcover books in your briefcase? How many are you going to read on the flight to Dubai, right? Maybe one and a half. So anyway... Delighted to have you here. I, I picked your book for several reasons. Uh, like your radio program podcast, you are inundated with offers, requests for people to be on your podcast, the same with us, but your book really spoke to me. In fact, I'll say it less eloquently. Uh, Wanda, your book kicked my ass because it was really a challenging read. You know, I mean, I know a few things about leadership development. I've been in the Franklin Covey Company for 25 years. We know a thing or two about leadership development. You're going to be one of my favorite guests on the topic because the book really takes a very different approach to um, understanding the influence and impact that leaders have on their journey. You've authored several books. Tell us quickly a little bit of your own professional journey. Orient yourself to our, our, our viewers and our listeners. And why did you choose to write this book most recently? Okay. 
Well, you started by saying I'm a reformed academic, and that is true. I started, I'm a psychologist by training. I was a marketing faculty member for a while, and I ran executive education for a while, hence the associate dean title. And along the way, you know, you sort of get sucked into doing more and more leadership development, you know, helping people be stronger leaders, lead stronger teams, and so on. And that's what I've been spending the last many decades doing. And I started coaching. I started coaching because I had done a piece of research on why senior women were not sticking in the companies. They'd get up to the top of the curve and not stick and thrive. And so that work led to a lot of coaching. And in the process of doing coaching, both men and women, I kept encountering the exact same story over and over and over again. And it goes something like the following. I've been leading a team for 10, 15, maybe even more years. I'm a really good leader. People love to work for me. I'm great at developing talent. And I'm in an area where that's my sweet spot. It's my comfort zone, if you will. And I know more about that area than anybody else. It gives me a seat at the table. It gives me credibility. My team follows me because they know I know more and so on and so on and so on. And suddenly that person gets the opportunity they have been looking for. It's a broader role with a lot more people and a lot more functions or a lot more responsibilities, products underneath them. And they're no longer the expert on everything. And the struggle to make that transition, to lead a team when suddenly the team knows more than you was just killing my clients, men and women. And I kept watching this and saying, we haven't talked about the importance of expertise. And that's what the book is about to recognize the expertise journey and say that isn't all there is to it. Wanted truly, I have read hundreds, if not thousands for sure, nonfiction business books in my 30 years, certainly in the, you know, close to thousand. Uh, I've never read a book that had the point of view that yours took. It's why I mentioned it kicked my ass because one of the reasons why I wanted to bring you on today was because I love the book Range by David Epstein, right? A very popular book, New York Times bestseller, six months plus ago. We had David on our program, had a great interview. And I mentioned to you in a previous conversation that David's book Range really validated me. Like many of your clients, I'm in the C-suite. I've worked my way up 20 plus years. Uh, always was a bit of a generalist. Actually wasn't a specialist or as you call an E-leader, uh, expertise leader. We'll talk about that in a moment. And David really kind of gave me permission to recognize that as a generalist, it's okay, right? Because there's a place for us. A lot of people come out of college as specialists, right? They go to medical school or they go to um, become a electrician or a chemical engineer or a physician's assistant and they're a specialist. And the rest of us who are generalists, I think feel a little bit intimidated. And we, mm -hmm. we're kind of jealous, not of their debt, but of their confidence and their skill set and their earning power. And I have mm -hmm. found that generalists tend to come into their own usually like in their 40s or early 50s. At least that was my journey. And it gave me some peace. Your book doesn't contradict that per se. It's a different point. You talk specifically about two main types of leaders. You call them the E leader and the S leader. Would you expand on that, please? Yeah. Yeah. The belief has been for a long time that what we're doing when we're doing business school development is that we're training general managers, people who have fungible leadership skills that I could take from one area and drop into absolutely any other place and they would lead quite effectively. 
And what I was watching with all of my clients is I couldn't find very many generalists. In fact, Scott, if I joke with people, I often say generalists are all dead. It's not true. And those skills are still hugely relevant. But what I'm seeing is this over-reliance on E, expert leaders. And I'm talking now not about just functional experts or individual contributors. I'm talking about people with deep expertise knowledge who are leading large parts of the organization, but they lead that from a base of knowing more than almost anybody else in that organization. That's what I call an E leader. And an S leader stands for spanning. So the concept is I may have an area of expertise, like for you, Scott, you have an area of expertise in marketing in many ways. And then, yes, I'm going to add responsibilities or I'm going to add areas underneath me. I'm going to span a broader range, but I'm not going to try to become the expert in all of those areas because I'm going to have other people who are experts in all those areas. So then the skill becomes the ability to span. How do I get confidence and credibility and trust and get stuff done and contribute value when it's not around my content knowledge or my ability to execute to get it done? Does that make sense? It does. Wanda, the, the type of leader you describe, a spanning leader, it takes a degree of humility and self-awareness and an abundance mentality and a collaboration. It requires you to recognize that you have confidence in your competence. Mm -hmm but that you're, you're very comfortable with having other people have much more deep, robust, palpable expertise than you do in their job function. Not everybody can make that cross that bridge. That's right. So many people will take over another area and then try to become the expert yeah. in that new area. And it just offends the team. You know, if I've spent eight years becoming an expert and you just become my manager and think you're gonna know it all in six months, I'm going to sit there with my arms crossed and say, okay, well, good luck. Let me know how it goes while I'm looking for another job. So it isn't the answer, but what, you know, the fundamental question I have to ask now is as a spanning leader is, so what's my value? Like, what am I bringing to the party that people need my team needs and my organization needs? And that's where the humility is really front and center. And it's not just pure humility as in saying, I don't know anything because that won't get you far either. It's that lovely balance between, I don't know this as well as you do, and I don't need to know it as well as you do. What I'm bringing to the table is this. So I've got that humility and I've got the confidence in an appropriate balance, not too strong on either one of them. I'm gonna ask you to expand on E and S leaders in a moment. I wanna read a passage from your book. It happens to be on page 32. You don't need to know that, but I'd love to have you expand on this. You, you write, there are far fewer general managers and far more specialist managers. HR executives in many companies will tell you that it's no longer even feasible to create career paths to groom generalists for top leadership because many managerial slots are simply not suited for people who bring mere managerial skills. It's deep technical knowledge that is needed and valued. This is where the potential confusion comes in. Expand on that for, if you will. Yeah. All right. So let me do this by way of example. Imagine that you're running, well, your company or any other company for that matter. Scott, even put yourself in the hiring position. And you don't have anybody inside the organization, the group that you want to promote. So there's not a natural successor for a vacancy that you have. So you're going to go out to the open market to recruit. 
Now, are you going to recruit somebody who is a generalist, meaning they know nothing about your industry, they know nothing about the area they're leading, they know nothing about the clients or about the products? Or are you going to go and look for somebody who knows the industry, knows the clients, knows the products that they're leading, maybe even knows some of the technical knowledge of what they're leading? Most organizations go looking for people with some expertise knowledge. Now, yes, we want some spanning capabilities as well, but we tend to screen first on expertise. And you know, if you think about it as well, here we hire somebody, the first question the team is gonna ask is, so what does this person know and how they're gonna help me? And they don't ask that from, are you gonna be a great manager for me? They ask for that, do you know anything about the stuff I'm doing? So there is this push on all sides to have expertise as a baseline. Now, I wanna add one more piece to that, which is in addition, we've stripped out in most organizations, the leadership development courses we used to do for young talent that moved them around in many different parts of the organization, learning different divisions, different products, different geographies that were used to develop this broad specialist generalist knowledge. Most organizations have killed that. And so we don't have the bench strength. We're favoring expertise over generalist knowledge. Wanda, let's use me as an example for a moment. I've shared this story before, but it's especially relevant here. I'm 51 years old, almost 52, been in this firm for just shy of 25 years, came up through the ranks, right? Individual sales producer, sales manager, sales leader, sales general manager, became a vice president, became the chief marketing officer for eight years, mainly because I understood the institutional knowledge of the company. I knew how to get things done, not because I was an expert marketer, I had a degree in marketing, but I actually could um, get in the boat, so to speak, with the sales staff and row with them then became the EVP of thought leadership. Uh, about seven years into my eight-year tenure as the CMO, my world shifted under me because the, the marketing world was changing rapidly. I, I needed expertise in SEO, marketing automation, Google Analytics, social media, how they all integrated together, what our tech stack should be, you know, all those things that I had really no knowledge in. I knew about brand, reputation management. I knew our IP very well. I knew our distribution channels. I understood our buyers and their challenges. I knew the institutional history of the firm for, you know, 20 plus years. I started to feel threatened because I needed to bring experts in the company that had significant nuanced knowledge on, on Google Analytics. And so I found myself subconsciously either hiring people who were exposing me as not being relevant or expert in it, or hiring people who weren't as competent as they should be so they didn't threaten my position. Now, maybe I'm a narcissist or a sociopath. You're a psychologist. You can diagnose that offline. I'm guessing my journey isn't that different from a lot of people's journey. In your experience, what is the pivot point when you've got people like me that realize they need to become spanning leaders and they need to build their maturity and sort of dip in and dip out but not become like experts and everything. How do people know when they're approaching that point in their career and they need to be aware of the, the competencies related to a spanning leader? Long lead up, I apologize. That's okay, it's a really good story and it's exactly the point of the book. So this book is written for you at that moment when you say, geez, there's all these things that we need in this company and I don't have time to learn them. Right. 
And I think that for most people, the break point is when you say, I don't have time to learn them. That's the part that gets you to say, maybe I need to do this from a spanning perspective as opposed to from an ex expert perspective. The real turning point for everybody I've ever worked with is when they get to understand what's the value I bring to the organization. And you just said it, Scott, brilliantly. What you brought was some institutional knowledge, a deep network and an understanding of how to get things done. Yeah. Now you bring me in, let's say, to do Google Analytics. Please don't really do that because I'm not even good at it. <laughs> but supposedly you bring me in to do Google Analytics. The thing I need from you is not how to do Google Analytics better. What I need is the introduction into the organization, the cachet that your reputation brings and your network and how to leverage that to get stuff done. That's your value. And the moment I can get people to understand that kind of intangible value, then we are off to the races of being able to develop the rest of the skills that are going to make you a brilliant S leader. Wanda, you've read my first book, Management Mess, Leadership Success, so you know I'm capable of being vulnerable. And I'll do that right now. I think I lacked the maturity or the self-confidence or um, something to not act earlier because I, I, at that pivot point, I realized my number one contribution beyond the things you mentioned was also recruiting and retaining talent that was palpably more capable than I was. And for whatever reason, I was feeling insecure about that. Maybe it was my boss or the culture or whatever it was, or perhaps just me. Uh, what advice would you give people who are at that same inflection point where they need to build the competencies of a spanning leader? Maybe the advice is, what, what are the, how do people get over the hump to realize, oh, I'm now in the transition of being a spanning leader. I don't need to quit. I shouldn't be embarrassed. I'm not going to fake it. I'm not going to hire people as talented. Give us some coaching and inspiration on how to move over the bridge. I have never spoken with a CEO, listened to an interview with the CEO, sat on a panel with a CEO who doesn't give the advice that you have to hire people who are smarter than you. Hmm. So just think about this. This is the natural journey. All right. And one of the other issues here is when you think about confidence, we always say we have to have confidence. This is important, you know, et cetera. It's true. It is. It's hard for people to follow you if you don't have some degree of confidence. But for most of us, our confidence comes from what we know and what we can do. So you put yourself in a position where you now know you need skills that you don't have. Of course, it's going to shatter your confidence. And the point is not to get stuck there, to say, right, I still need those skills. The organization is going to be better for those skills. This is good for the long run. And I have to trust that I have more value to bring than just the pure how to do something like Google Analytics myself. And it's that self-talk that gets you over the hump. Um, digging, you know, if you hire this person because you need that expertise, then say, great, how am I gonna make that person successful? What am I gonna do that brings this capability front and center in this company to give it the value that we need? And I promise you, you will then be on the right path for spanning, because there's a ton of stuff you have to do. Sometimes, Scott, I'll do this with people. I'll say, someone who's struggling with this transition, I'll say, I want you to look upwards in the organization and name a leader that you admire that has been really useful for you in the organization that you think does a great job. 
And then ask yourself, what is it that person does that makes me value them so much? I promise you, it won't be about their content knowledge. It will be about their people skills, their use of their network, their care of talent, their ability to identify talent, develop that talent, get feedback, that human stuff, all that stuff that goes under the spanning leadership capability. And that can also give you confidence that you're on the right journey. You're going to become like those people that you admire. Where was this book three years ago? Why did you not write this book in 2017? Dang it. (laughs) I want to have you talk in a moment about one of my favorite characters in the book. I think you call her Sonia. But I love Mm -hmm. this quote, and I want you to riff on this. Um, In a moment, we'll talk about Sonia's journey. In essence, what she was telling Sonia is that she's expected now to demonstrate the wisdom of breadth, which is as different from the wisdom of depth as night and day. Remind each of our listeners and viewers the differences between the wisdom of depth versus the wisdom of breadth. So as an expert leader, I'm trading on the depth of knowledge, meaning I can go as deep into the details in my area of expertise as anybody around me wants to go. And I have huge confidence that if I don't know it, there's probably not very many people around this organization, at least, that do know it. So that's where that confidence comes from. I know my stuff and I know what I'm talking about. And that's the depth. If you ask me to span outside my depth, let's say to riff like Sonia on the market challenges in a completely different country with a completely different product set, she wouldn't know very much. She gives some general tidbits, but she doesn't have any depth. What happens with Sonia, as with all S leaders, is you're now taking on broader areas of responsibility. And suddenly you find you need to know just enough about it, but not the depth. Now, you can't be totally naive. You have to know something, but just a little bit. But you're now going to be spanning across areas that are vast. Like in Sonia's case, suddenly she needed to know IT. She'd never been in the IT department or worked with IT before. It was just a thing that was there. Um, She needs to know a whole new market. She needs to deal with different countries. She needs to deal with a different product cycle. She needs to deal with different clients. It's a vast range, suddenly, that she has no experience in. And what she's got to do is to acquire a tiny bit of knowledge across, and that's the wisdom of breadth. Wanda, one of the reasons I liked reading your book, even though it was kicking my ass every day, was you wrote it, in my opinion, similar to me, similar to how in the back of HBR, Harvard Business Review, in every issue, they have like a fictional case study, right? You know, Tim is a marketing leader in so-and-so company, and here's his challenge. And you wrote a lot of the, the stories like that, right? They were very relatable. My sense is these, these stories are real. They're just uh, fictionalized names. Would you take maybe five minutes? We have the time. Would you walk our listeners and viewers through Sonia's journey? Because I think a lot of people can relate to the arc of her career, her struggles, and her conclusion. Take four or five minutes and kind of recreate the story, one of many in the book, about Sonia's uh, movement from being an E leader to an S leader. All right, so Sonia's in the real estate space. She's based in the US, in Chicago, and um, we might say a kick-ass person in her space. She knows it inside out. She's a little bit grown up with that business. Her father was in some of that area, so she's got a deep knowledge, deep expertise. And she's a top talent, you know, high potential, as we would all know, and she's been being groomed, in effect, 
to take over someday the Latin American market. That is part of her heritage and she does have some language skills. So it is a natural next growth for her. It gets her outside of one market into a more global role. It lets her span. She, you know, it's all good for her career development. And it is a good next step. But it comes a little faster than anybody had expected. So the person who is currently running Latin America, Aaron, is leaves suddenly for what is a great opportunity for Aaron. And it leaves a vacuum. Fortunately, in this company, they decided Sonia was their best bet. And so they plopped her in. And Sonia comes in with all the confidence she has in her prior market into this bigger market with more countries and more people and running the market, which means she now has to be responsible for things like IT. And that's one of the stories that we tell. But she's used to knowing the details and making very quick decisions because she's got it, you know, the facts right underneath her fingertips. She's confident in herself. She knows where she's doing and she kind of has a style that says, I don't want to waste a bunch of time and I'm going to be very direct. I'm going to tell you what I think and we will all just get on and move on with it. Um, and she has huge respect for Aaron too, by the way. He's been a bit of a mentor for her. So this is all a good thing. It's like, you know, nobody's distressed about it. But boy, does she find suddenly that the organization doesn't love her as much as she expected them to love her. Now, she's not a person that needs everybody to love her deeply, but you know, you kind of want to be liked a little bit as a leader. And she overhears people in the coffee area gossiping about her town hall, saying in effect things that are not very kind, like arrogant and what does she know and why is she here? And then, you know, there's this play, this particular moment when IT comes with this final approval on a big investment of a project that Aaron was ready to sign off for and they just want her final okay before they pull the plug and invest money. And she says, I don't get it. I don't see why we need it. Um, get out of my office and ultimately says, this is a waste of time and I don't know what you guys are doing and no, we're not doing it. I'm saving the money. And then loses some key IT people in the way, largely because she just couldn't understand why this product would work. It didn't fit in her understanding worldview experience. And it's at that moment she starts to say, uh-oh, this isn't going to work. It's also at that moment, by the way, in her organization, I don't think I tell this story, but HR at that point is starting to say, I'm not sure we made the right choice. Maybe she's not as good of a leader as we thought she was. Maybe she's only good in a particular country or a particular area. And so they were beginning to have doubts about how successful she was going to be. Something many people call the Peter principle. Yeah. Promoted beyond a level of confidence. And she now is like in a bit of state of panic of, oh my gosh, what am I going to do? And it's that panic, not unlike your story either, that gets her to stop and say, hold on. I have to do something differently. One of those is to call Aaron and say, how did you do this job? In fact, Aaron gives her some great insight. Land that story with some of the insights that Aaron shares with her. Yeah, one of the, one of the things I love about Sonia, she goes to Aaron and she says, how did you make IT decisions? Like, right. are you an IT expert somewhere in the background? Notice the expertise preference still in Sonia's language. And Aaron laughs at her. He says, you must be kidding me. I, you know, flunked science in high school. I don't know anything about IT. 
And then she goes on to say, but how did you lead? Like, how did you get their confidence and make decisions and make sure you weren't wasting money? Like, how did you make those decisions? And he says, in effect, the same thing I've heard from every spanning leader. I asked a lot of questions. I would go and spend a day or a half day in IT, getting them to just talk me through how they spend their time. What are they doing? What's taking up their time? What's not working? What's in their way? What are they thinking about? And you know, in an, in an e-way, in an e-leader way, Sonia asks, so was that for the purposes of checking up on IT? And Aaron says, no, 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 no. I couldn't check on them if I wanted to. And they would be deeply offended if I tried. I don't know the depth of knowledge to be able to question their judgment. But what Aaron says he does learn is where the barriers are, where extra investment is needed, where he needs to push another area to help, where he needs somebody else to dig a little bit deeper. And that perspective, that breadth of perspective, if you will, lets him make other decisions that are gonna make a big difference to IT. So this project that um, Aaron is ready to sign off on is something the IT group is deeply committed to and believes is going to increase their productivity. And Aaron listens to the arguments, asks a few questions, checks with some other people about it, and is indeed ready to sign off on it because he trusts the IT group. And in fact, was a crucial contribution to their level of engagement overall in the company as well. He got yes. that. Wanda, your wisdom is, I think, profound in the book. Chapter four, you do a bit of a self-assessment. Self in our final few minutes here, I'm going to skip four and ask you to kind of just give one big idea from five, six, and seven. So now as you've made the case of moving from an E leader, expert leader, to an S leader, a spanning leader, it's a, it says a big mindset shift for, I think, all of us as we begin to move up in organizations. You talk in chapter five around how you add value. What would be an insight you would share from that? As an S leader. Okay. One single simple thing is think about the network you already have in the organization. Exactly as you said, Scott, you know how things get done at your organization. Think about that network and think about how you use that network to help people who are now working with you and for you. That is one of the biggest contributions yeah. you can make. Yeah. The, the next chapter, chapter six, how do you get the right work done? Share a big idea from that. The problem is I can't do it anymore as an S leader. I have to get you to do it. Right. And the question is, how do I know you're doing the right thing? And quite honestly, you just have to trust it. What everybody loves in that chapter is understanding how it is that I can delegate work and ensure that there's some quality in the delegation when, in fact, I'm not doing it. And this really leans on your ability to do some coaching skills to ask people through questions, to get them to help them think and have some natural touch points that you can go back to people. I guess I should also say one of the big issues here is taking a broader view of the organization and being strategic, kind of stepping up from my day-to-day -day fray and saying, what are we trying to accomplish as a whole, not just my part, and how are we contributing to that whole is another big piece. Wanda, we are like perfectly matched on this. About two years ago, Franklin Covey launched a one-day offering called The Six Critical Practices for Leading a Team. I was privileged to co-author the book um, about the course. And the first practice, we say, is develop a leader's mindset. It's the first practice, the most important one, we think. And that is a lot of leaders come into leadership roles, often at the first time, first level leader, and they think, my job is to get work done on my own. 
and they have to make the, the, the fundamental mindset shift to know, in fact, my job is now to get work done with and through other people. And once you make that mindset shift, you can start to become a spanning leader. Uh, we, we couldn't be more aligned on that. The next, and I'm going to end here, is number seven is how do you interact with people? What advice would you give the spanning leader that may or may not have the EQ that they want because they were a functional expert or such? There's no correlation there, I know. What advice on how to interact with people would you offer as a spanning leader? Okay, so let me just make one contrast point here. There are many of them, but one contrast point. As an E-leader, when there's a conflict or disagreement, the E-leader is going to tend to lean into the facts, take the emotion out of it, and work towards a logical conclusion. And in their area of expertise, that is a legitimate piece to bring to the table as part of the discussion. But as a spanning leader, you can't do that. And in fact, what you need to do is a thing that is much more valued in the end. And that is to work through the conflict, considering the emotions, recognizing people's commitment, people's concern, people's anxiety, people's feelings, all of that. That is part of how you make that decision. And you can't just take the emotion out and go to the facts. You got to lean into the emotions. Wanda, as we conclude our conversation today, kind of recap for us, as you look across your journey as um, a professor, a dean, associate dean, coach, you host a very popular radio program, podcast, do a lot of executive level coaching, what do the best e-leaders that transitioned to successfully to spanning leaders, what have they done? What are the two or three competencies that they've mastered? What does that look like? I think, you know, it's a little bit of a cliche, and that's what my clients used to say to me years, well, through all the way through, is we don't have enough leaders who know how to motivate. And one of the core elements of an S leader is that you're motivating, not because of the knowledge you're acquiring by working with me, but because of all the other things that go into motivation, what you need, how I'm developing you, how I care about you, the mission that we're on, what we're trying to accomplish as a group, how I keep people together, how I collaborate. It's all of that human to human stuff in many ways that the best S leaders do. And I'm gonna add one last point on this one because the best S leaders that I have ever worked with say in effect that they're constantly looking for that one more edge What's the one little kind of tiny, tiny tweak that I can do that's going to get a better reaction from a larger number of people? And that mindset of constantly adjusting to get more is um, sort of the heart and soul of what an S leader is about. Wanda, the book has done extremely well. It's your most recent book. You've authored books prior to this as well. What are you working on now and what's next for you? I, one of the funny things with me, Scott, is I always have a long list of things that I'm working on. So we have a brand new simulation for younger women because I believe we're going into a world where the younger generation and all of us are going to want bite-sized pieces of information and very much more dynamic, interactive kind of environment. So that's one thing. And consistent with that, we're working on a follow-on in this book, which is sort of a bite-sized how-to management guide that takes some of the exercises from the book and turns that into something you can consume in small bits. Do you have a title so for, the next, two. for the next book yet? 
Yeah, there is an there is a book in my mind. We'll yeah. see whether when it comes out, what it exactly looks like. There's actually two in my head. I'm not decided which one I want to do first. Well, we look forward to that next book or two, Wanda. I hope we can be first in line to re-interview you. Your current book is called You Can't Know It All, that's for sure. Leading in the Age of Deep Expertise. Thank you so much for your time today. Thanks, Scott. Enjoy the conversation very much. If you want to move from being an e-leader, an expert leader, to an S-leader, a spanning leader, a concept I didn't fully understand, but as she walks us through it in her book, it's, I think, um, a visceral read for all of you looking to build your leadership skills as you grow your career. Pick up a copy, um, and we'll see you back here next week for Franklin Covey's next interview on leadership.